morning, LifeBridge. I am so glad you're here. I'm Pastor Chris, and whether you're watching live or later, you're welcome to learn with us. Our goal is to bridge the gap between biblical learning and radical living. And every week we ask, hey, here's a great time to like and share. Get the good word out to those who need it. And uh, if this is your first time, you came at a great moment. This is the last lesson in concluding our series called Surrender, Wisdom's Path to Success. And before you tune away or turn away, uh, because it's the last one, that's okay. Because you can listen to every lesson in the entire series here on our Facebook page under videos or on our website we are lifebridge.com under resources or even subscribe to the LifeBridge New Life Class uh, podcast on iTunes. Now, the best way to benefit from any teaching from God's Word is to have an open Bible and an open heart. And so open your Bibles, if you would, to Proverbs 3, and then let's pause for a moment and ask God to do what only He can do, open our hearts to plant the seed of His Word in teachable hearts. Why don't you pray with me? Father, we do ask that You would do what only You can do. With Your Spirit, Your Word, penetrate our hearts. Cast light in those dark areas that we're not even aware of, or perhaps we have purposely hidden from view. But Lord, all of our hearts are exposed to You. And so I pray your word, which is more powerful than a two-edged sword, that can penetrate to the deepest discernments and motives and intentions of our heart, that you would show us, Lord, where we need to grow, what turf we need to surrender, and how we need to love our neighbors as ourselves. For we know this is pleasing in your sight. We pray this in the precious name of your Son and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Well, God is shaking our world, and I really believe, and many others do as well, that He's sifting His church. The living God is reminding His church to love our neighbors as ourselves. And that's okay. And that's a good thing because it's a biblical command. It's one of the two great commandments that summarize everything that God requires of us. It's also a cultural concern more than ever before. I mean, when you have politicians to NFL coaches giving speeches about loving your neighbor, you know that this is on the cultural uh, horizon. And then it's also wise counsel. Loving our neighbors is essential to wisdom's path to success. And that's powerfully addressed here in the book of Proverbs. And so if you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, turn to Proverbs 3, Proverbs 3, and we're looking at verses 27 through 35. So follow along with me, and I'm going to read here in the New American Standard. You follow along in your Bible, and let's check God's Word out. Proverbs 3, 27. Do not withhold good from those to whom it is due, when it's in your power to do it. Do not say to your neighbor, go and come back, and tomorrow I'll give it, when you have it with you. Do not devise harm against your neighbor while he lives in security beside you. Do not contend with a man without cause if he has done you no harm. Do not envy a man of violence and do not choose any of his ways. For the crooked man is an abomination to the Lord, but he is intimate with the upright. He welcomes them into his wise counsel. The curse of the Lord is on the house of the wicked, but he blesses the dwelling of the righteous. Though he scoffs at scoffers, yet he gives grace to the afflicted. The wise will inherit honor, but fools display dishonor. Now, the challenge now and always, I mean, if I were going to sum up what we just read, it's, it's really simply this. Choose to love your neighbor in a culture of hate. Choose to love your neighbor in a culture of hate. 
I like this quote by uh, Southern Baptist pastor uh, Danny Aiken. He says, you are not wise or in right relationship with the Lord if you're not a good neighbor. If you love God, you will love your neighbor. Now, in our last lesson, we, uh, we looked at this passage. We took an inductive approach and ended that lesson with this observation. And it was this, the heart of the problem is the heart. In other words, surrender your turf to the Lord. And we use that idea of turf because we reference Don Fanucci, the famous mafia boss in Godfather 2, who was driving, uh, riding in a car and he's looking around his neighborhood and he says, this is my neighborhood. In other words, this is my turf. I rule it. I play by my rules. People do what I want. I get the results that I want because this is my turf. And every one of us, I said last week or last time we studied, has a little Don Fanucci in our heart. We have a little mafia boss that has our heart and says, look, this heart is my turf. This is my neighborhood. And if we're going to love our neighbor as ourselves, then we're going to have to listen to wisdom and learn to surrender our turf. Now, if you downloaded the notes, you have this chart uh, here in your notes, and it's really an overview of how I understand and and how I'm packaging this passage. Uh, You can see the progression, choose to love your neighbor in a culture of hate, and you can see we are to love the neighbor near you and around you. It, it, It widens in scope, and it goes with, it has four negative commands. Don't withhold good, don't devise harm, don't be antagonistic, and don't become violent. But all of that is a progression from passive putting off to active planning to verbal aggression that spills over like a, erupts like a volcano into physical attack. And we said ultimately, to sum this up, It's kind of saying, like Don Fanucci, my turf, my resources. I don't have to share if I don't want to. My turf, my rules. I'm getting what I want, and I don't care if it hurts other people. My turf, my reasoning. Look, I'm always right, you're always wrong. Lump it or leave it. And my turf, my rights. I'll secure my rights by force if I have to. Well, this morning what I want to do is take those four negatives, those four don'ts, turn them into the positive, flip them over into the positive command that Solomon is trying to drive home. And we're going to look at four ways to surrender our turf in order to be a more loving neighbor. So let's take a look at wisdom on surrendering our turf. And here's the first uh, way to surrender your turf. Help your needy neighbor whenever you are able. Help your needy neighbor whenever you are able. Look in your Bibles at verses 27 and 28. It says again, Do not withhold good from those to whom it's due when it's in your power to do it. Do not say to your neighbor, Go and come back manana tomorrow. I will give it to you when you have it with you. It's there in your hand. Now, this, these two verses refer to helping someone who truly needs it, and you have the means to help them. Now, anytime we start talking about helping needy or poor people, uh, you know, kind of people go to two extremes, right? And so wisdom avoids two extremes in helping the needy. And the book of Proverbs talks about both of these extremes. The first is this, giving to anyone and everyone without discernment and discretion. In other words, thinking that, oh, if I'm going to be godly and wise and like Jesus, then I need to give to anyone and everyone who asks without any discernment or discretion. 
But we've already seen in Proverbs 3 and verse 21 that the wise father has already warned his son to be discerning and to act with discretion. We saw that in verse 21. And if you are familiar with the book of Proverbs, you know that Proverbs has much to say about the foolish sluggard who wastes his or her opportunities and needs to learn from the school of hard knocks. For instance, Proverbs 13.4 says, The soul of the sluggard craves and gets nothing, but the soul of the diligent is made fat. The sluggard, here's another one, the sluggard buries his hand in the dish, but will not even bring it to his mouth. I mean, I, that's a wonderful word picture. So lazy that, yeah, the hand goes to the dish because gravity pulls it down, but doesn't even have the effort to bring the spoon up to the mouth to satisfy their hunger. Listen, this person is not our humble, needy neighbor, but a proud, foolish rebel. So that's one extreme. But there's another extreme, and it's this one. Not helping those who humbly ask while we hold what they need in our hand. And that's what our verses are talking about. Here's what I want you to do. I want you to have this word picture. Picture you're in the Sahara Desert, and there's a man who is dying of thirst, and he's crawling crawling near you and he sees you there and you're holding this big cold glass of water and he's just saying water water cold water i know what that's like i've been there before he's saying that and here's what you do you 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 act as if you don't hear him and you don't see him or worse you look right at him And then you just gulp down that cold glass of water in front of him. Or, even more unloving, you say to him, Hang in there for another day. I'll come back tomorrow and see if I can't bring you a cold glass of water too. That's the kind of grudging withholding of what is needed by another that's being addressed in these verses. Now, what I want to do is answer the question, why are we called to help our needy neighbors? I want to give you three reasons. First of all, we are to be loving givers, not selfish hoarders. We are to be loving givers. We are to be flowing channels of God's blessings and not dead cesspools that hoard in all that God is giving us. Think about 1 John 3, 17 through 18, and it says this. Listen to what the Apostle John says. If anyone has the world's goods and sees a fellow believer in need, but withholds compassion from him, how does God's love reside in him? Little children, let us not love in word or speech, but in action and in truth. Whoa, it's like John's comment, commenting on Proverbs 27, uh, three, chapter 3, 27 and 28. John is reminding us that if we are to help our fellow believers in need, we are to help them even when they don't ask for it. Okay? Sometimes we can have grudging hearts and say things like this. Well, they didn't ask for help, so I didn't help them. Or if they needed help, they would ask. And I just want to stop and say, really? Really? Do you and I always ask for help when we need it? I don't think so. Besides, what John says in 1 John uh, 3 is this. If anyone has the world's goods and sees a fellow believer in need, but withholds compassion from him. And that, I just can't, uh, that brings to mind immediately this, the Gospels, where we see Jesus moving among the people. And when he sees people hurting, he is moved with compassion and he acts proactively to meet their needs before they even ask. But there's a second reason 
why we should help our asking neighbors in need. And it's this. We are to be debtors to love, not demanders for self. We're to be debtors. Live as debtors to others, not demanders to get what we want. Again, look at verses 27 and 28. Look at verse 27. In the New American Standard, it says, Do not withhold good from those to whom it's due, to those to whom it's due. But in the Christian Standard Bible, it kind of explains that idea of to whom it's due. And here's how they translate it. When it is in your power, don't withhold good from the one to whom it belongs. Whoa, that's a powerful, that's a powerful statement. It's yours, but it's theirs. What's going on here? Well, uh, Pastor Ray Ortland. Uh, in his commentary on Proverbs, just did a beautiful job of explaining this. And here's what he said. We may own it legally, but we owe it morally to our neighbor in need. You see, it's yours. It's yours. If you have good you can do for somebody, then legally you own it, but morally they own it. The state has no right to force you to be generous. This isn't teaching socialism. And no one can walk into your house and start helping themselves to your possessions and say, the Bible says, I own it. That would be stealing. Instead, the Bible says to your neighbor, do not steal and work hard. That's Ephesians 4.28. But the Bible says to us, Give out of gospel generosity to your neighbors in need. You owe it out of love. Now, the second thing we want to see, and it builds off of that, and it's this. We give generously because we have received generously. We give generously because we have reason. That's what gospel generosity is talking about. In 2 Corinthians 8, 9, classic verse about gospel generosity. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, through his poverty, might become rich. Look, think about it. Jesus was rich in all things, and yet he freely became poor. He didn't surrender his divine nature, but he surrendered the glory and the recognition and the praise he received in heaven. And he did it so that we who were spiritually poor might become spiritually rich. And now... By His grace, we are enabled to live in such a way that we love our needy neighbors just as the Lord has loved us. Listen to me, listen to me. Love lives with an open hand, not a grasping fist. Love lives with a giving heart, not a hoarding heart. The Apostle Paul Put it this way in Romans 13, 8. Listen. Owe nothing to anyone except to love one another. For he who loves his neighbor has fulfilled the law. We are to live as debtors, not demanders. And then finally, the reason we help our needy neighbors is because we are to be active lovers, not passive haters. Now, what do I mean by that? I mean, simply this, and it's a great little motto. Do for one what you wish you could do for everyone. See, what happens when it comes to poverty and people in need, we start getting overwhelmed because even Jesus said we would always have the poor with us. So how, how do we alleviate this? How do we do it? Well, do for one what you wish you could do for everyone. And here's the deal about being active lovers and active givers. In the Old Testament, good was not this abstract concept like we often talk about it. That's good, that's bad, it's abstract. No, as one Old Testament scholar put it, good is that which does good 
and evil is that which causes harm. Both good and evil create social conditions. There's a lot of debate about system, systemic uh, racism. Well, really, the Bible teaches there's systemic sin everywhere in our social structures. In, 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 completely, in a completely outward sense, this man goes on to say, they can build up or destroy the community, property, happiness, reputation, welfare of children, and much more besides. Here then, it is a question not only of tendencies inside of our heart, but of life-forming forces whose power was obvious to all. In other words, we should be active lovers where our love and our action and our giving is seen by how we help others in need. Listen to me. Listen to me. It's not enough to not be a racist. That's passive. We are to be active in treating others justly and speaking up and standing up for those who we see around us being treated unjustly. For instance, you know, let me get out of the realm of the, of the controversy and move it back in history. Sometimes we can see these things better in the past. Corey Timboom and her family were not passively anti-Nazi. They also acted to help and protect those being treated unjustly and unmercifully. And listen, they did it in a nonviolent manner, and they did it to the degree that they were willing to sacrifice everything they had, including their very lives, to help others. Listen, it's not enough to say, you're a Christian. People that say that are dime a dozen. But that's passive. We are to be active in loving like Christ loves us. We are to be doing and and being and doing like Christ. Think about James 1.27 where James says, A true worship of the living God is to reach out to orphans and to help widows in their distress and to remain unspotted, unstained by the world. Listen, social action that doesn't lead to heart transformation is not the kind of worship and love that God is looking for. Listen, the Apostle Paul described his entire ministry as being a debtor to all peoples. He said it doesn't matter whether you're Jewish or Gentile. It doesn't matter your ethnicity or skin color. I am a debtor to preach the gospel to all peoples. And beloved, that is what people need the most. They need the life-saving, heart-transforming message and person of Jesus Christ. So instead of saying, my turf, my rules, or I'm sorry, my turf, my resources, I don't have to share. Let's say, I surrender my turf. I surrender my resources. These are his resources to share with my needy neighbor. And so you see, wisdom creates a culture of sharing in the midst of a culture of hoarding. But King Solomon doesn't stop there. Here's a second way to surrender your turf, to love your neighbor. Number two, protect your trusting neighbor, especially... When they don't see it coming. In other words, proactively protect the neighbors who trust and live securely around you. Look again at verse 29. Do not devise harm against your neighbor while he lives in security and trust beside you. You see, Solomon is moving from the asking neighbor in need to the trusting neighbor who sees no need to fear you doing him or her any harm. They live in trust beside you. You see, the first warning was about passively not being generous. But here we're talking about 
actively planning to do someone wrong or get what you want from them and they don't know you're about to stick it to them. Now, what could that be? Perhaps by falsely accusing them so that you can profit. Perhaps by cheating someone out of something that they didn't even know they were entitled to. You diverted it to you and they didn't even realize it. Maybe by actively plotting how to take advantage of an unsuspecting person or customer or spouse. You see, trust is the glue that holds communities together. Think about this. What do a husband and wife, for example, most need from one another? Trust. What do bosses and employees most need from one another? Trust. What do pastors and members most need from each other? Trust. What do leaders and citizens of a nation most need from one another? Trust. And what do neighbors most need from one another? It's trust. And isn't it interesting that in Proverbs 3, 5 and 6, the central passage is about trusting in the Lord with all your heart. You know why? Because trust is the foundation on which real relationship can happen. It's the air in which relationships grow. Listen, we all know what it's like to trust someone and then he or she turns against us and betrays us. We all know that. And it is deeply painful because trust is so profoundly powerful. What is wisdom saying to us here? It's saying this, negatively, don't plot evil against your unsuspecting neighbor. Don't look for ways to exploit your innocent co-worker. Don't betray those who trust you to do them good and not harm. All of that, all of that is the foolishness of a culture of hate. And listen, it leads to the death of community and it will destroy a country like ours. And so the good news is that heaven has come down to us through Christ. He defended us when we deserve the opposite. So, hey, let's stick up for our innocent neighbor. Let's stick up and stand up for others who are unjustly treated. Here's wisdom. Creating a culture of trust in a culture of betrayal. So here's what I say on this. Instead of saying my turf, my rules, I'm getting what I want, even if I have to betray or exploit someone else. Let's say I surrender my turf. I surrender my rules and I'm going to trust in the Lord and play by his rules to do good to my trusting neighbors. So what have we seen so far? How do we choose to love our neighbors by surrendering our our turf? Help your needy neighbors whenever they ask and you are able and even if they don't ask. Number two, protect your trusting neighbor, especially when they don't see it coming. But here's a third way, and it's this. Refuse to be antagonistic or argumentative with anyone that kind of rained on some of our parades because some of us are more prone to this than others the idea is refuse to be antagonistic or argumentative with anyone look at verse 30 chapter 3 verse 30 do not contend with a man and that means a general human being, another image bearer, man or woman. Do not contend with a man without cause if he has done you no harm. And so we're moving now from our near neighbor who lives beside us 
to any other fellow human being, no matter who they are. And notice, we've gone from verse 29 that says, do not devise harm, exploiting trust to your own advantage, to do not contend without cause, destroying peace for another's disadvantage. One is to benefit you. Now it's to do harm to someone else. Now, the key word in this verse is contend, contend. In Proverbs, it refers to human conflict and the problems it creates. It's used to describe a quarrel. It's often translated strife, argument, quarrelsome. Those are the ideas. And it's among humans, it's horizontal, though the conflict is often described in ways that has theological or vertical impact on our walk with God. Now, repeatedly in Proverbs, the wise are warned to avoid strife. Let me just read you a couple. Proverbs 18.6 A fool's lips bring strife and his mouth calls for blows. Okay, so with our tongue, uncontrolled tongue, you end up getting beat up when you say foolish, argumentative things. Proverbs twenty six seventeen, Like one who takes a dog by the ears is he who passes by and meddles with strife not belonging to you. Okay, another, what a word picture. You come up to a dog, you grab it by its ears, you shake it around, and you're going to get bit. You're going to bleed. Well, guess what? When we poke our nose into other people's business and they're arguing and we step in, we're going to get bit and we're going to bleed too. Listen to Proverbs 26, 21. Like charcoal to hot embers and wood to fire, so is a contentious man to kindle strife. So you see, listen, Proverbs has a lot to say about arguing, picking fights, verbal attacks. In other words, don't be an antagonist with anyone. And again, back to Proverbs twenty six seventeen. Don't be like that person that takes the dog by the ears. Don't be that person. You're going to get bit. And, and don't be like a piece of charcoal. Don't be fuel for a fire. Don't be an antagonist. Now, where does this kind of antagonism and unloving aggression show up today? Where do you think? You can put it in the comments. Where do you think antagonism and argumentativeness shows up more than any place else in today's world? You guessed it probably. Social media social media in fact just today i read this tweet from none other than ray ortland's son gavin ortland which is kind of ironic for this lesson and here's what he tweeted out twitter seems to reward snark and outrage more than logic and kindness more than logic and kindness so if we're on this platform we are going to have to be vigilant in monitoring how it is shaping us not playing by its rules in other words we need to surrender our social media turf in order to be loving to our neighbor now it's one thing to use social media for the glory of god but it's another thing for social media to use us in a way that is unloving, unkind, argumentative, antagonistic. So let's ask some probing questions because I'm telling you, contending with people without cause, any person, the application of this is so relevant to today's social media platforms and that's for people watching of all ages and stages of life so we're going to ask some probing questions and i'm really going to ask you right now to just say god i humble my heart remember in the previous lessons have a teachable heart to correction listen to the words of a wise father and these questions are geared towards people 
who profess to be Christians. So for a moment here, if you're not a believer in Christ or you don't, you don't even, you're not even sure if you believe in God, keep listening, keep watching, listen in. But I'm really talking particularly to our own LifeBridge members of whom I'm one of the shepherds and accountable and responsible for, but also anybody watching who is a professing Christian. And here's some questions. What are you known for on social media through your posts and what you like? Now, before you answer that question, first of all, ask God to reveal it to you. Second of all, you may need to ask someone else who you're friends with on Facebook or you follow and interact with on Twitter and particularly ask someone who may not be a believer or who may disagree with you politically or or doesn't hold to the same beliefs you do. In other words, someone who's kind of on the other side and ask them, hey, from your perspective, how do I come off on my posts? How do I come off on my what I like and share? Here's second question. What do you repost? What articles, memes, and videos do you share? Listen, listen, listen to me now. Listen to the Lord. Have you so identified with CNN or Fox News that people can predict what you're going to say before you say it? Do you defend your right wing or your left wing? I guess I should have said right wing, left wing. Do you defend your turf at any cost? Are you more known as a capitalist than a Christian? A socialist more than a saint? A Democrat more than a disciple? A, a, a Republican more than one who is righteous in Christ? Could you be easily confused with a white nationalist or a black activist based on your social media post rather than being clearly seen as a humble Christ follower who loves God and loves your neighbor as you love yourself? Do you seek to understand before being understood and posting? Do, are you known more for your conservative views than for your Christ-like humility? Are you known more for your activist views than your Christ-like holiness? These are all questions that have to do with the wisdom of Proverbs. Here's another major question. Are you passing on articles that you've never read yourself? One of the most dangerous things about social media is we can pass on foolishness because we simply don't read what we repost. Do you verify what you repost to make sure it's factual? I've had to slow myself down and do this, and I'll tell you this. There's a lot of times headlines I agree with, but when I read it before I repost it, I find out that the headline is clickbait, or I find that the article is skewed. Are you buying in to unsubstantiated conspiracy theories? This is something that's really clouding the witnesses, witness of many Christians on social media who are just buying into conspiracy theories. And I'm not saying there aren't conspiracies. And I'm not saying they aren't theories. But a lot of this conspiracy is a, just a bunch of hocus pocus. And we're not verified. We're, we're just being duped. Have you so marked your turf on Facebook that people see you more as a political activist than a loving, truth-telling Christ follower? Here's another question. Are you a church basher on social media who is actually hiding your doubts about God behind your activism? Man, it, it, this is so popular among even big evangelical leaders on social media that the church, it's all negative. It's all negative. The church is the problem. The church is the problem. Hey, 
We do have issues that we need to address and we need to listen to others. But folks, Christ has promised, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail. Listen, there are thousands of godly pastors, godly Christians, Christ-loving, Christ-exalting churches in this country that never show up on your Twitter feed or your social media. And we need to have a positive outlook towards the Lord. Not denying the weakness, not denying our sins, but positive. I'm not saying you have to censor your opinions and beliefs. I'm not saying you shouldn't engage in lively debate and rational interaction and even biblical defense of of, of the gospel. I'm not saying that. What I'm saying is this, and it's going to come up here on the slide. Is your social media presence so one-sided and so one-dimensional that people think your Jesus is not interested in them or their pain or their struggles? Listen, folks, it should grip our hearts that we are often presenting a Jesus made in our own image, in the image of our political views, rather than in the image of the one true living God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit as revealed in the Scriptures. And it's sad to say, but many Christians are discipled more by social media than they are by their local church and by the Word of God and by the Spirit of God. Now, I know uh, this is heavy stuff, but it's stuff we need to examine. But listen, let me be clear. I'm not saying whether you should or should not be on social media. That's something that you have to work out, get alone with God, talk to Him about it, talk to other wise, mature people, and then you do what will bring God the greatest glory, make you more like Christ, and make you the most effective witness you can be. Because listen, social media is the marketplace of today, and we do need a Christian presence, but it needs to be a Christ-like one. It needs to be one that loves our neighbor as ourselves. Now, you might be thinking, "Woo, man, I'm glad he's not talking to me because I'm not on social media. I hope those people that needed this heard this. Or maybe you're thinking, Haha, I'm on it, but I don't post. I'm a lurker. You know, I hope those other yahoos out there, I hope they're hearing this. But listen, listen, we don't get off that easy. Let's talk about some personal interaction, okay? Because whether you're on social media or not, The heart of the problem is the heart. And that's something we all struggle with. So listen, are you an angry antagonist or a loving apologist for Christianity? Are you just in it to win it at any cost? Or are you willing to woo others with a gentle and humble love? exemplified by the good shepherd, the Lord Jesus Christ, who Isaiah said he would not snuff out a smoldering wick. He does not go out in the streets calling for revolution. That's all in Isaiah, the servant songs. Sadly, and some of you may know this, some of you may not, but I'm just using it as an illustration. A well-known conservative a uh, commentator and author who claims to be a Christian but doesn't always act like one or talk like one recently was caught on video sucker punching a cussing and aggressive and antagonistic a- activist and it was all caught on video and I'm sure most of us have seen the pictures of of protesters shouting and intimidating people who are simply eating at a restaurant, trying to intimidate them. You say, what is my point? Well, I'm not purposely trying to get myself in trouble here this morning, but it's this. Both of these videos that most of us have seen demonstrate foolish behavior that does not love our neighbors 
as ourselves. And listen, it does not show love for our fellow human beings. And listen, both of these should be denounced as unchristian, unbiblical, and unwise. Don't let your political leanings prevent you from calling out that which needs to be called out as unloving. Here's another question. Do you prejudge others and find yourself enslaved to your own prejudice and hardness of heart? Here's finally the last one, and you're probably glad for that. Are you a hypocrite who talks political activism or shares Bible memes but lacks the integrity to live out your beliefs? Listen, here's the bottom line. Do you stand out from the crowd in a good way and for the right reasons? Listen, listen to what wisdom is saying to us here. Negatively, don't be a fault-finding, critical person ready to pounce on some well-meaning individual with a gotcha. Instead of saying, my turf, my reasoning, I'm right, you're wrong. Instead, let's say, I surrender my turf. I surrender my rudeness. I will seek to understand before being understood. And I will resist the gravitational pull of my pride to win at any cost and to always be right. Selah. Well, listen, the heart of the problem is always the heart. And if we don't let the risen king of Israel, the one greater than Solomon, the sinless son of David, if we don't let him wisely correct us and search our hearts and give us a new heart, we're going to end up imitating the ways of the violent person. And that's the fourth way to love our neighbor. Reject the ways of violent people who are crooked and cursed by God. Look at verses 31 and 32 in your Bibles. Do not envy a man of violence and do not choose any of his ways. For the crooked or the perverse man is an abomination to the Lord, but he is intimate with the upright. Now, we've gone from the progression all the way from verse 27 to verse 32. We've gone from passive withholding to active planning to verbal aggression. And now it erupts in physical attack. But there's also a cause and effect in verses 31, in verse 31, rather. Notice, don't envy a man of violence and do not choose any of his ways. And I think what it's saying here is be careful who you envy. Because we tend to emulate, emulate those we envy. We, we tend to imitate those we envy. Now, who, are, who is it that we're not to envy and not imitate? It's the violent person with a crooked heart. Now, look in your Bibles. These words for a violent, a man of violence, that word, and the word for a crooked person, in verse 32, combined with the word abomination in verse 32, come together in a powerful way that describes more than mere physical violence. This isn't just about someone that sucker punches or loots and, and comes through and physically tears up and tears people up and beats people up. It's talking about extreme wickedness that carries out sinful actions against God and others. In other words, the violent heart is a crooked heart that's filled with unbelief, bitterness, and deep-seated malice. It's the heart of an idolater and apostate in the Bible. But before you think... This verse only applies to someone else and not us. Remember that these verses are linked with verse 27. In other words, what I'm trying to get you to realize, the force of this passage is this. God sees us 
when we are unloving to our neighbor as having profound wickedness in our heart. Just the withholding from the person in need is an abomination to the Lord. Just the thinking of how I could get an advantage over another is a cursed, a curses upon that kind of thinking. See, in other words, when we refuse to surrender our turf and we choose to be a neighbor hater instead of a neighbor lover, we're acting like a wicked apostate who is turned away from the living God. And all such actions and unlovingness is an abomination to him. He, it's an abomination in verse 32. It's cursed in verse 33. He mocks us when we live this way in verse 34. And we will be ashamed before him at the final judgment. So this morning, instead of saying, my turf, my rights, I'll secure my rights by force. Let's say, I surrender my turf. I surrender my rights. I surrender my rights in order to be and do like Christ who came to seek and to save those who are lost. Now, take a moment, take a breath, and I know you're probably thinking what I'm thinking as I've worked through this passage for the last three weeks. You may feel and say to yourself, I can't do this. This is overwhelming. I've tried to be a more loving person. I've tried to stop habits of being antagonistic. I've, I've tried to be more giving, more sharing, more kind. And it seems the harder I try, the more I fail, and the angrier I get, and the more bitter I, I get, and I've been betrayed again and again, and I'm just drowning in my own depravity. Well, guess what? It's true. You can't do this. I can't do this. But here's the good news. Jesus has come and lived the surrendered life for us so he can live the surrendered life through us. Do you realize he surrendered his resources in heaven to come to earth in order to seek and save people like you and me? Sinners of all varieties and kinds. He surrendered any rules for getting his own way. He surrendered any rudeness in proving himself right. When, here's a man who was always right and yet was always misunderstood and always accused falsely. And yet he was never, ever rude. He surrendered his rights in order to go to the cross to bear your sin and mine when he was sinless. And he rose from the dead and he reigns at the right hand of the Father so he can cleanse you of your sin. And so he can create in you a new heart, a vessel within you that he has filled and will continue to fill with his love by his indwelling Holy Spirit. Now, this past week, Gwen and I traveled down to Springfield and I taught lesson four in the per perspectives course that some of you have been in. And part of that teaching in that course, I talk about how Jesus has modeled loving your neighbor as yourself. And think about this. He loved he, he didn't just teach the parable of the Good Samaritan. He lived it. And he loved people. He was a Jewish carpenter's son. And he loved people from every walk and stripe of life. Just quickly, he loved a Gentile demoniac that was naked and living among the dead. He loved a Samaritan leper that was unclean. Others would avoid. He drew near. He loved an immoral Samaritan woman who was shamed and isolated from her community, who only wanted to argue religion and politics with him. Sound familiar? He loved a Roman centurion who was the man, 
who was in charge, who was the dominator, the conqueror. He loved a pagan Canaanite woman who most likely dabbled in spiritism and the occult. And he loved immigrants and refugees who had no claim on him as the king of Israel. And you know what? When he loved these individuals, they came to him, men and women, from all walks of life, and they came to him by grace alone, through faith alone, in him alone, and he forgave them, and he transformed their hearts from the inside out. And suddenly, they had new purpose, and their purpose was to be with him wherever he went, like the demoniac. They had a new passion to worship him, bow down before him, and worship him with a loud voice, like the cleansed leper. They had a new hope in a coming kingdom where every ethnic group and could worship together, united in spirit and in truth like the Samaritan woman. And they received their heart's desires, not fully in this life, but ultimately one day in the kingdom to come. But in the meantime, in the meantime, these individuals, just like you can be, were welcomed into the intimate circle of the Lord Jesus Christ. I love this verse 32, but he is intimate with the upright. Oh, in other words, they surrendered their turf and they gained a kingdom. I call out to you today. Surrender your turf. Conservative, liberal, left, right, red, blue, purple, everything in between. Surrender your turf and gain the kingdom of God. A kingdom that's not measured by critical race theory or white supremacy. A kingdom that's measured by joy righteousness, and peace. So let me ask you, especially if you are a professing Christian, do others see in you the joy of the Lord? Do they see the righteousness of His kingdom rule in your life? And do they see the peace, the shalom of a confidence that God has me and my destiny is secure in Him. Do they see it in your conversation? Do they see it in your conduct? Do they see it in your social media? Listen, because Jesus is king over all, He's king over your turf. You can trust Him with all your heart. So I challenge you this morning, choose to love your neighbor as yourself. And stand out from the crowd by the way you wisely love in truth and truth in love. We'd love to help you with this. If you look in the comments, there's a connection card. And we'd love to help you take next steps with this. Well, listen, uh, before we pray, I just want to say our 930 streaming uh, is uh, done this today this Sunday, for the near future. And the reason being, I'm going to begin preaching in October and into November to uh, prepare our hearts for the World Outreach Celebration. Yes, we're having one. The theme is creative access, persevering in advancing the gospel in hard places. And so this is our last time together, but they're always going to be uploaded. And I just want to say, as we sign off this morning, I want to thank you for joining me at 930. Do you realize we have done 24 Sundays? We only took off two Sundays, I believe, but a total of 24 Sundays, an entire six months. God's grace has sustained us, and I hope you've grown in him. And I just want to thank Chris. Thank you. Audra, thank you. You don't see them. My wife here has been my support as well. And I want to thank Nikki Nisley for this great original artwork. I've meant to mention this all throughout this, but uh, hey, this has been good. 
And I hope to see you in person. And we also will continue to stream the 11 o'clock worship service. So let's pray. Father, we thank you. We thank you that in the hardest of times, you sustain us by your grace. Lord, help us to love as you have loved us. Help us to love all humans, all image bearers, as we would, as we do love ourselves. We pray this in the precious name of the greatest lover of all, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Hey, take care.